Okay, so tonight uh, we are in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to cover 10 verses, 16 through 26, cruising right along here. Um, we are uh, going to cram a lot in here tonight just because I don't like where it's breaking. <laughs> and I, to understand, and when you have a whole week in between, it's sometimes hard to put things together. And so I'm going to try and go through some things fast here so to try and cover it. Wednesday night Bible yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, chapter four, verse 16 is where we're going to be. And like I said, if you've missed other parts of it or want to hear more people listening, you can go to patreon.com and look up creation instruction. So chapter four, verse 16 says this, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Pretty simple here. Keep in context here of what's been going on. That Paul has been talking about circumcision and that these Judaizers are coming in and saying in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you, you, you can't be a believer. And so Paul is addressing that issue and he's just got done talking about you Gentiles are observing all these special days, years, and whatnot. And he says, don't go back to that. He wasn't talking about Jewish festivals. He, wasn't, he was talking about all these things that you used to do as non-believers because you thought that that would bring salvation. Let me tell you, Christianity is completely different than what you grew up with. It is completely different than the culture that you know. There is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. And that's what you always grew up in. Think about it. Nothing has changed today. Christianity is the only religion that shows you that you can do nothing to be saved. Every other religion is a works righteous religion. Now, by no means am I not saying we shouldn't do things, but those things aren't for salvation. And so even back then it was the same. These Greeks and these pagans, they believed that there was something that you had to do in order to be saved. And so this idea of circumcision to be saved would have been a very natural thing for them to come into and, and accept. Well, so now he's saying, am I your enemy because I'm trying to tell you the truth? So I can kind of relate to that. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to teach you guys the truth of Scripture in, in context, and yet there's a lot of people who kind of see me as an enemy because I'm trying to put you under the law again. No, not at all. It, quite the opposite. I'm trying to free you from the law in the sense of the way that the law is viewed by modern Christianity today. And I'm trying to expose the law as what it was meant to be is a blessing. And so, even in the Garden of Eden, we see Satan had to kill the truth in order to make way for or room for the lie. And ultimately, I think that's what Satan has done, is he has had to try to kill the truth of the importance of the law of God in order to make way for a lie of, say, a prayer you're in. There's nothing more that needs to be done. You go to church, you're saved, period. Okay. Well, he continues here in verse 17 and says, They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. 
But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. I want to point out who is this they again. Well, it's these people who are trying to bring them back under salvation by works. Salvation by rules. That's the they. Now, competition by churches is not what God intended. And yet that's what we have in America for sure. I think in some other countries as well. We should never be worried about somebody going off and starting another church unless they're starting a church that's got bad theology. But the whole intent is to break off and start other churches. That is kind of the idea that we can see here. These people had a worldly philosophy. They, it says, they want, they exclude you that you may be zealous for them. I want you to be followers of me, they're saying. And that's what really drives a lot of this in, in churches today is we get, we get kind of zealous for the numbers because we don't want people to leave because we got to have the money or we got to have the reputation of having this big church or we built this big church and we have to now maintain a big church. And those are dangerous things, but that's what was going on here. He says, these people... They're, they're zealous, not really for you, but for themselves. Yep, we shouldn't be so worried about people following us as much as people following Jesus. And I'm telling you something. You know, there are a lot of people, friends of mine, that come and they apologize that they don't come to the Bible study. And I'm like, you know what? It's okay. You don't have to apologize. I don't want any of you to be here if you're here for me. I don't want you here. Not that I don't love you. Not that I won't continue to be friends. I want you to be here for the right reason. And if you're not being fed here, I want you to go someplace where you will be fed the truth. Not because I don't love you. Not because I don't appreciate you being here. But I want you to be zealous for Jesus, not me. Okay, I'll let you down. But he won't. My wife is giggling like, oh, yes, he will. <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, that's what Paul is saying. Paul says, I want you to be zealous for God, even when he is not there. And he says, it's good to be zealous in a good thing. It's good to be zealous for God always. Not only when I'm present with you, but even when I'm away. It isn't about me. So... Um, what Paul is going to say, what, what is this good thing he's talking about? Well, the context of what we've been seeing is this, salvation by faith. That is a good thing, and he wants you to be zealous for what Jesus has done for you, that, the gospel. And zealous for that freedom we have in Christ. Now, I use that word, we're freedom we have in Christ, but I use it hesitantly because of what it means today in modern Christianity. Freedom in Christ has become to be known as free from the law. That's not what freedom in Christ is. And we're going to see that tonight. I love what Martin Luther used to say, and I'm just paraphrasing. But he basically said that when he became a believer, he got to do whatever he wanted to do. And how he was saying it, the intent of what he was saying was absolutely correct. Because what he was saying is, 
He went on to say, because I no longer want to do those evil things. When we truly understand Christianity and Jesus, you don't have to memorize a bunch of laws that you, so that you don't you know, forget not to do these things. Because it's already in your heart. You, you get to do what you want to do. I want to keep the Sabbath. I get to do that. That's the difference. And that's what Martin Luther was saying, and he was spot on with that. When we become believers and we know Jesus, we get to do what we want. It's just that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I no longer am thinking, but I have the mind of Christ, as the scriptures say. And there's no longer anything that I must do in order to be a Christian. I want to and will do. Verse 19 says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Now this is kind of funny because Paul would like to change his tone now. It's not like he's been this little cuddly you know, teddy bear up to this point, and now he's saying, now I've got to change my tone because I have some doubts. I'm not liking what I'm seeing. He says, these Galatians are children in the gospel, little new believers, infants of, of Christ. And he says, I'm laboring to cause you guys to grow up. Um, and labor can be painful in essence. He said, I'd like to be present with you now because I, I want to rebuke you. I, I want you to hear how important this is, is what he's saying. Uh, I love that verse. I don't know if it's Galatians, but he says this, though you have many guardians, you do not have, no, how is that worded? Though you have many teachers, you do not have many fathers. Therefore, I became your father for the gospel in, or in Christ Jesus or through the gospel in Christ Jesus, something like that. Paul said that, and I don't remember exactly the address, but he says, though you have many teachers, you don't have many fathers. What's the difference between a teacher and a father? Well, a teacher will teach anything, but a father will discipline. Teachers typically don't. They'll, they'll make you feel good, whatever. But a father is going to discipline when you get off. We've got a lot of teachers in churches today. A lot of teachers that will teach a lot of nice, warm fuzzies, but they're not going to tell you that you should not get a divorce in these circumstances, that you should not get an abortion, that you should stand up against homosexuality, that you should stand up uh, for what's right. They're not going to speak against BLM. They're not going to speak against social justice because they're teachers, not fathers. And a teacher can gather around themselves a great number of other teachers and people who want to hear what they're going to teach to tickle the ears. But a father loves his children and a father is going to discipline and tell them the truth. And that's what Paul is saying here. I'd like to be present, he said, but... I, I need to te teach you children truth because I have my doubts about you. 1 Corinthians 4.15. 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4,
So, imagine you meeting a new Christian that thinks that in order to be a Christian, they have to wear a suit when they go to church. And if they don't wear a suit, they're, you know, displeasing God. They're, what, you know, uh, maybe not even a believer. In, a, in essence, that's kind of what's going on here. Paul is coming to these new Christians, and they've got this idea that they have to do something in order to please God and to be a good Christian. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. Now again, modern-day Christianity has often attached, that means he's saying, get rid of the law. That is not what he's saying. He's saying, get rid of all these man-made rules for salvation. Keep my rules, but get rid of the man-made rules. Now, verse 20 says he wants to change his tone, as I said. Um, that simply means he's going to get a, be stronger in his rebuke to them. And here is where he begins his stronger rebuke, which you look at it and you go, doesn't seem, I think I could handle this. But you need to understand that in his heart, he is in desperation pleading for these people not to, to go down that path. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and of the free woman through promise. So, in other words, he's saying, aren't you hearing true Torah? Aren't you hearing the, the, the real law? Because you're putting yourself under the law in regards to the topic that this whole book has been about so far, circumcision. He's not saying, you who desire to be under the Ten Commandments. That's kind of the way we often like to read it, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you are putting yourself under the law of circumcision. Now, I'm going to be able to prove this, that I'm not just kind of making this fit my own interpretation here in a little bit, okay? But that's what's going on here. Um, verse 22 he takes them back to Torah, to Genesis, and he's going to show that there are two different covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and that they are not under the Old Covenant. Now, again, there would be a lot of teachers and preachers out there who hear me say we're not under the Old Covenant. They go, finally, he gets it. Keep listening because you're going to change your mind. I do get it. I think they're the ones that aren't getting it because this is not saying you're not, that the law is thrown out. Not saying that at all. I know it looks like that, but we have to take the whole context as you're going to see. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump ahead here on the bottom to chapter 5 just to show you the context. If you have your Bibles open, Look at that. You can see, not far down the road here, just a few verses later, it goes into chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. See, we are free in Christ, like I've been saying. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't get back under the old covenant. But what does that mean? Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. So have we lost the topic of circumcision yet when he's talking about being under the law? No, we have not. 
Chapter 5 shows us this is still the context of what's happening here. Now, we are going to come back and see Abraham's two sons. But, let's uh, go a little bit further here in Galatians 5 first. Because I want you to see the context of what's happening here in chapter 4 continuing. It says, I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? He's saying, if I was continuing to preach that you had to be circumcised to be saved, I wouldn't be persecuted. But I am being persecuted because I'm telling you, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Literally in the Greek, it's like go the whole way and castrate themselves. Rather than just circumcise, a nice slip of the knife to cut the whole thing off. That's what he's saying. Literally. Verse 13, For you, brethren, I have been called to liberty. Paul has said, I'm called to freedom. The freedom in Christ. And this is what I'm preaching to you. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. In other words, yes, I'm free in Christ, but hey, be careful. Here's that anchor statement. But don't use your liberty to let your flesh or live by the flesh. What's that mean? We'll talk about that coming up. Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. Now notice the law is still valid. But how do you fulfill it? Well, in one word. He says, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, by one word, he's kind of basically saying one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Can you see this contrast? He just got done telling you, don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, you have to live in the spirit. When we went through the book of Hebrews, earlier on in Galatians, he's making this contrast all the time. We live in the spirit, not in the flesh. We live in the spirit, not in the flesh. Romans, the same thing. We, do not serve, we no longer serve in the, the, way, the old way of the written code, but we serve in the new way of the spirit. This is a theme of Paul throughout all of his books. So he goes on and he says, Walk in the spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. So what's he mean? If you don't want to walk in the flesh, what's that mean? He's going to tell you right now what it means to walk in the flesh. Because the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery. Fornication. Doesn't that almost sound like commandments? Right out of Torah. Uh, uncleanliness. What's that? Uncleanness. Okay, what is uncleanness? Moral impurity. Okay, I think that's kind of covered in fornication, adultery. Well, I would think Torah would explain what those things are. We see that lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. How do you know what a heresy is? By the law. Right? It's just like what John says. How do you know what sin is? Sin is 
lawlessness. You can't identify what is right and wrong without the law. Okay? And he says the works of the flesh are breaking the law. That's the works of the flesh. And he goes on, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It almost sounds like Paul is contradicting himself, doesn't it? You can't do anything to be saved, but if you do, don't, if you do these, you're going to hell. You can't inherit the kingdom of God. To me, it, it just seems like you could easily say that Paul is contradicting himself, like I said, because on one hand he's saying you, you can't do anything to be saved, but now he's saying you can't get to heaven if you're doing these things. Clearly he's not throwing the law away then, is he? What he's throwing away is not God's rules, but man-made rules and circumcision. Now we've already talked about that in earlier chapters, he is throwing out circumcision, which was a God-made rule, but the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, said there would be a change in that. And so he's using Scripture to throw that one out. Otherwise, you can't just throw God's rules out. So we've covered that in earlier uh, lessons, so if you missed that, go back and listen. Um, so, point is, law is still in effect, but it's fulfilled how? In love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God, in other words. If you love your neighbor, you're going to automatically do the commands of God. Okay, I, If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to covet his stuff. I'm not going to covet his wife. I am not going to steal from him. I am not going to kill and murder him. I'm not going to do any of the things that the law said because it's unloving to my neighbor to break those commands. If you love your neighbor, you're going to love... It's just natural that the rest fall in play. We've, we've talked about that before as well, just how you can funnel all the 613 commands down to like, you know, I don't remember what it was, 13 down to 5, and then, you know, it gets down to 1. And that's really what Paul does here as well. Same thing that the Jews have done. Um, in verse 19, he explains what it means to live in the flesh, as I said. Um, but just keep in mind, then, the topic of Galatians in chapter 4 isn't about getting rid of these commandments. It's about getting rid of circumcision to be saved or any rules to be saved, any form of justification without faith. So... Back to chapter 4. He says in verse 24, which things are symbolic? Now what he's talking about, again, remember, he was saying there are two covenants. Abraham had two children. One through Hagar, one through Sarah. And he says, for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. So Hagar, this foreigner is a picture of Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments come. In other words, what comes from Hagar is going to be Ishmael. So Ishmael is a picture of the Ten Commandments. Okay? Verse 25, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, 
and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. In other words, the earthly Jerusalem. And is in bondage with her children. You know, if you go to Israel today, those of you who went with me, you'll know, you can walk through the streets of Jerusalem and see idols and just paganism all over the place. Jerusalem today is still in bondage with her children. I know that we like to think that it's this holy city. No, God's eyes are on it, but let me tell you, there is all kinds of unholiness going on in the city of Jerusalem today. The old city, you even have a Muslim quarter, right? So, this is, I mean, very real even to this day. That is a picture of the old covenant. Which is interesting to me because the Bible tells me that the present Jerusalem is a picture of the old covenant, the old and what do we as all, all Christians want to do? Run to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not saying we can't do that. I'm not even saying we shouldn't do that. I take tours there. I love Jerusalem myself. Because I know God's eyes are on it. But right now, it's in bondage. And you can see that when you go there. You go to the Wailing Wall, you feel the bondage. Because there are people who do not know Jesus Christ there. And it is a, a heavy oppression, I think, that's there. Anybody else feel that? So, that's what he's saying Mount Sinai is. That's what he's saying Hagar, Ishmael. But now verse 26, but the Jerusalem above, the one that we can't take a bus trip to, that one is free, which is the mother of us all. All believers. The Jerusalem that is above, we, we're going to talk about that when we go to uh, Revelation. We see that there is a new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven down to this earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and on this new earth there is going to be a new Jerusalem. That's what he's talking about here. That Jerusalem that above is free. Okay? Um, I'm not going to talk much about this in Arabia, but just to throw it out there, you know, where is Mount Sinai? The New Testament says it's in Arabia, which kind of throws a wrench into the idea of where if you go to Mount Sinai today, it is not in Arabia. And so there's a lot of question where the real Mount Sinai is. I'll let you do that on your own study on that if you want. But nonetheless... Sinai gives birth to bondage. That's the key that we need to talk about here tonight. It's a covenant. A covenant has to have two people. That's important to understand. Even the old covenant had two people involved. Now, um, to understand this, I want to take you to when that covenant was given to understand what he's talking about when we're dealing with Hagar, the old covenant, Ishmael, the, the, you know, the earthly Jerusalem in bondage. What is all of this? Well, let's go take a look at it in Exodus chapter 19. And here's what we see. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. 
Notice that two-party covenant there. Part of the covenant of the Ten Commandments was this. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. If you do that, then you're my treasured possession. Which implies if you don't do that, then you are not his treasured possession. Right? So the old covenant was based on free will. You have a choice. The entire Old Testament is set up that way from Genesis on. Genesis, he puts the Garden of Eden in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everybody asks why. It's simple, because he wants you to have a choice. You can eat from this tree or that tree. You choose. He goes to the Mount Sinai. He says there are blessings and there are curses. Blessings if you obey, curses if you disobey. You choose. Joshua, choose this day whom you will follow. But as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. All through the Old Testament, we see choices. And by the way, that doesn't change in the New Testament either. He's always going, I set before you today life and death. That is part of the covenant. It's conditional based on your fulfillment of it. Now, I'm not saying you can save yourself. What I'm saying is salvation is free, but it's conditional on a choice that you have. And it's critical to understand this. Verse 7 continues here. It says, Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Going to verse 17. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. When we get to Revelation, I don't know if there's a connection or not, but it's interesting that the sun is going to be darkened and the moon doesn't give its light. We're going to show you some verses in Isaiah that will talk about that as well that seem to be the reason it doesn't give its light is because the sun hasn't changed, the moon hasn't changed, but that there is a covering over it. And possibly, not saying it is, I'm just saying possibly, maybe it's because the Lord is coming down and when he comes down, what happens? The whole mountain is filled with smoke because God is coming to bring judgment. I don't know. Anyway. Um, what's interesting is that this covenant that he's making, remember God wrote these commands with, the, with his own finger the very finger of God, front and back. They are even literally called the words of the covenant. Okay, the, this is the words of the covenant under Hagar in our Galatians 4 Midrash. Paul calls them the ministry of death. The words that, Jesus, that God himself wrote with his finger is a ministry of death. It is a, Hagar. We're going to continue here in Exodus 20. 
And we're going to see the giving of the law. Look at this in verse 18 of chapter 20. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Now this thunderings, lightning flashes, trumpet, uh, see my message on flames of fire and speaking in tongues and whatnot on that because this is exactly what they saw in the book of Acts, tongues of fire. That's what it reads there. And um, just like at Pentecost, we see that the word went out to all nations. That's what they say happened here. And you can even see it there that the, the word goes out to the to the world, to all 70 nations. Uh, in this case, in the Old Testament, 3,000 people will die. And in the New Testament at Pentecost, when the tongues of fire happen, 3,000 people are saved. This is happening at Pentecost. And so there's a connection between Pentecost and the giving of Mount Sinai, the law at Mount Sinai. So in blue there, it says, when the people say they don't want to hear the word, God responds saying it's good. Deuteronomy 18, 17 as well there, I want you to see. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. Kind of same story. He says, don't, don't let God speak to us. And God says, that's good. They're, they're speaking rightly. It's like, what? Shouldn't they want, you know, you would think that you'd want them to hear God's voice. Um. But the reason I think God is saying it's good is because, first of all, it shows their recognition of who God is. But secondly, it will kill them. God's word will kill them because they are unholy. They cannot stand in his presence being unholy. That's what the word is supposed to do. It's supposed to convict us. It's not supposed to please the flesh it should make our flesh tremble. And that's what was going on here at Mount Sinai. Today we like to give the word to make the flesh feel good. No, the, the word is supposed to convict. Well, what God wanted was Moses to be the mediator. Moses does become the mediator. The people then go to Moses. Moses then will talk to God. God talks to Moses. Moses goes and tells the people. He is the mediator. He is the picture of what Jesus becomes for us. The mediator, which is what Timothy tells us. There is one mediator between God and man, the, the man Jesus. Okay? You don't need a priest. You don't need Mary. You don't need any of those angels or saints. You need Jesus, period. But note here that all Israel heard this covenant. So now we jump to chapter 25, just kind of following the story through. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. Then, or and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In other words, God gives the Ten Commandments. Now, part of that is you need to have them build me a tabernacle so that they will bring offerings. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that they may minister to me as a priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, uh, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithmar, then you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So in order to make the offerings, he had to set up a priesthood. 
just kind of giving you an outline of what the Old Covenant is scripturally. So the first thing the priests are commanded to do in the Old Covenant is to teach Torah. And then to make atonement for the people through the sacrifices, to be the mediator. Because sin was separating them from God. The only way they could get to God is through a mediator, through these sacrifices. So their job is to intercede. Without the priest making this atonement, there could be no relationship between God and the people. It was impossible. So, under the old covenant, you can't have a relationship with God without these earthly priests, these earthly sacrifices, and keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping these laws that He gave you. If, then. That's the old covenant. All of them with the intent of bringing these people closer to God. So, Here's the Old Covenant in, an essence, in essence here. you got the Ten Commandments. If you obey them, then you're my special treasure. He assigned a mediator to speak, to share these rules. Moses. Don't let, we don't want him to speak to us. Fine, Moses will do it. You needed a temple. God says, now go build a temple. You needed a, a sacrifice there. Okay? Um, and you needed somebody to do those sacrifices other than just Moses, so you had the Aaronic priesthood. And so all of this is, are the, basically the elements of the Old Covenant. None of these were negotiable. Does that sound anything like today's Christianity? Does that sound like anything that I'm preaching you to, to do today? I hope not. Okay, the New Covenant looks nothing like this. What I teach looks nothing like this. Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I command you. Do not take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. You were not to add or take away. But if you're willing to obey, then God would be with you. That's the covenant. Now this covenant had to be ratified or sealed by blood. That's why those sacrifices were there. And that's what he tells us here in Exodus 24. Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and so on. Verse 8, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant. So those are the elements of the old covenant. Now that you have that down, which I don't think I've really told you anything new here tonight, but trying to put it together in a picture for you, let's compare that to the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 foretold this New Covenant was coming. A covenant that is represented by Sarah and the Jerusalem that is above. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one's not going to come from Mount Sinai. This one's going to come from the Jerusalem that is above, Sarah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of, the, out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Ooh, 
you break the covenant, if then you're in trouble, right? Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now what I want you to see is there are people out there who are teaching that what we have today is a renewed covenant. Does this sound like a renewed covenant? No, he's saying there is Sarah and there is Hagar. There is an old, there is a new, there is an obsolete, and there is a current. But this is a new covenant, not a renewed covenant. Uh, it, it is brand new. So, Galatians here is showing us these two covenants. They are separate, not renewed. It's very important for you to understand. What are the differences? Well, one is the location. It says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, same law, in their minds. Now that law before under the old was on stone. And where was it kept? In the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place. And he says, and he's going to write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So here we're getting a clue that the part of the new covenant has nothing to do with getting rid of a law, but rather changing where it is stored, where it is kept, and what it is written on. Now it's in our minds, and it's in our heart. In the Old Testament, as I said, it was kept in a temple, and today it is kept in a temple. But the temple has also changed. Hebrews talks about that. There are many verses that talk about that. We are now the temple. And so where does that law supposed to be kept? In the temple, our hearts and our minds. So the law has not changed. The law was not gotten rid of. But the temple has changed. The location of the law has changed. And now, because, remember in the Old Testament, you had to have somebody, because the people were unholy, you couldn't be in the presence of holiness or else you're dead. I mean, you've all seen Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> There's some reality truth to that. You couldn't be in the presence of God and live. You couldn't see His face and live. But yet now, He lives in me. I am the temple. How can that be? There was no way that could happen under the Old Covenant. But you see, because of Jesus' blood, taking away our sins, not just covering it, taking it away, we can be holy. And now the Spirit of God lives in us, and He empowers us to have the ability to keep what they couldn't keep. Now, I'm not saying that you can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, you can keep it perfectly in the sense there's no condemnation. I, can't, I don't sin anymore. Now, does that mean that I don't take the names of the Lord in vain ever in my life? No, I have. Well, how can you say you don't sin then? Because do you know that that sin is not counted against me? It's not counted as sin. It's cast as far as the east is from the west. And so now God can call me a saint, not a sinner. Which is why, throughout all the New Testament, he says to the saints in Galatia, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Ephesus, he never says to the saints and sinners in Rome. 
We are saints because I live in a state of forgiveness. That could have never happened under the old covenant. Under the new, that his law is in my heart, that his spirit is in this temple, that, that he's in me, everything's different. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Again, a difference. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Those are some pretty serious words in the New Testament under the New Covenant. If you are the temple, how do you defile the temple? I think the New Testament has been pretty clear about that as we went through Galatians earlier on the first few chapters and we were comparing it to Acts. What we see over and over in the New Testament are the believers telling us, don't defile the temple. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Stay away from sexual immorality. Do not eat with meat with blood in it. Those same things are repeated a number of times in the New Testament. Why? Because it is so important that you guard your temple and protect the temple. Because that is holy. That is where the Holy Spirit lives and dwells you know you go into those mosques well you can't go in it anymore years ago i went into that the dome of the rock mosque of it's really not even a mosque i don't even know what they call it, but that gold dome in jerusalem anytime you would go into a mosque of any of those muslims you take your shoes off why because it's holy kind of like moses remember god says take off your sandals for the where you're standing is holy ground guys you are now holy. You mean people are so careful not even to walk into a mosque with their shoes on, but yet we treat our body as if it's ours and we can go do anything we want with it. No, he says, you're the temple. Protect it. Because if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are. Those are some... That verse... Something worth meditating upon right there. That sounds to me not like, hey, I'm free in Christ. I get to go do anything I want, whether it agrees with the law or not. When Israel sinned, God allowed the Babylonians to come in and conquer them. Daniel would not defile himself. We see Antiochus, as we just went through Hanukkah, one of the first things, what does he always, Satan always want to do? To defile your temple. Why do you think he wants sex to be promoted in such an ungodly, immoral way throughout the country? Because he knows that we're defiling the temple, we're defiling the land even, with the murder of you know, uh, abortions and things like that too. He knows, but yet we don't seem to get it. He knows homosexuality is an abomination because it defiles the temple. Antiochus knew, I want you all to eat pork and I'll kill you if you don't. Those were the things that were going on. Why? Titus, the same kind of thing. 
I mean, think how crazy this is for first century Jews when Paul is telling the Gentiles in, in Corinth here that they are the temple. You want to talk about a radical message. I mean, it's easy for us today in our outside of the context and culture, but that temple was still up. It was still in operation. And Paul's saying, you guys are the temple. Man, I am so glad. I got it easy today to try and teach truth. I can't imagine having to go and try and teach those things to a culture that that's all they knew. My job's easy compared to that, I think. It would not have been received well. 2 Corinthians 6, 15. What accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. By the way, he's quoting Leviticus here. Apparently, you know, get rid of those things, but yet we want to quote it constantly to show you truth. Makes no sense, does it? I will dwell in them. So Paul must have seen some sort of merit in the Torah to be quoting that here. I will dwell in them. When he says God has said, that's Leviticus. In the past it was a building, but now it's us. Under the old, God dwelt with the people. Under the new, God dwells in his people. The big difference. Um, remember that previous slide. If we defile the temple, God will destroy us. Are, are we bringing idols into our temple? How do we do that? Maybe even into our minds, the things that we allow to you know, play around in there sometimes? I don't know, just a thought. Well, how did this happen that the Spirit began to live in man? Well, faith. Look at this. John 7, 38. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart, by the way, that's where the law is at, right? Flow rivers of living water. It's not an accident that the Jews see water as a picture of Torah, the law. Out of his heart will flow the law. That's how they see that. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. How did the Spirit come in us? By believing in him. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, this is a huge thing here as well, because when the, the Holy Spirit inhabited Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, remember the Holy Spirit came to them? That blew Peter's mind. It blew all the Jews' mind. That was a big deal. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, who was the covenant for? Jews. Jews only. Under the New Covenant, who's it for? Everybody. Praise be to God. God has handed all men, all men over to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on them all. Again, that was foreshadowed many times in the Old Testament as well that that would happen. But you see, that's a big difference between the Old and the New Covenant. So, how does this living water come out from us? Well, believing, the Holy Spirit living in us. When His Spirit is in us because of faith, that Spirit can come out. 
Uh, well, basically, the, the living water is what I'm saying here. So how? Because he writes his law in our hearts. He writes his law in our minds. And therefore, it's what's in us is what should come out. So you can see how the law is now spiritual. Not just physical on the Ten Commandments outside the courthouse lawn or the Ten Commandments written on stone sitting in the Old Testament tabernacle. Even today, there is a physical law, just like in the Old Covenant. When those Ten Commandments are sitting outside in the courthouse lawn, it's very similar to the Old Covenant. You see, I don't have any problems with that being there, but that's the Old Covenant. Now the New Covenant, those Ten Commandments aren't on the courthouse lawn, they're in me. That's the difference. The law is now spiritual in the mind, in the heart. So, Exodus 31, verse 18. It's the same Holy Spirit, just in a different function. When he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Luke eleven twenty in the New Testament. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Isn't that interesting? The same finger of God that in the Old Testament, the commandments were written with on stone. Luke now says is what he casts out demons with. So, it's the same spirit putting them those commandments on our hearts. Luke says it's the same spirit that casts out demons. Therefore, I want to show you that this finger of God is the Holy Spirit, in a sense. The Spirit of God. Matthew 12, 28. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the same event that Luke was speaking of. But he says, the Spirit rather than finger of God. Let me back up to show you that. If I cast out demons with the finger of God, and now here in Matthew, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Talking about the same thing. So the same Spirit writing the law on stone, the finger of God that wrote the stone, is the same Spirit that writes the commandments in our hearts. It's the same powerful word that casts out demons. So let's go back to Jeremiah under this, this promise of the new covenant. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What's that mean? Well, why does he write the Spirit, the law in our hearts and our minds? So that we may know him. That's why he gave the Old Testament commandments too. I give you this command so that I, you may know me. Same thing here. By rejecting this law today, you will never be able to truly know God. I gave them to you so you may know me. This is why the Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. He's not going to know God. He's a man of lawlessness. In the Old Covenant, you couldn't know God if you were breaking His commandments. In the New, 
because we are saints and holy, he can live in us, since he is holy as well. And we can now know God. Also, I think so that they all will know me is that kind of pointing to the fact that Gentiles would come in to the kingdom of God. In the old, only the Jews and just a few sprinkles of Gentiles who became Jews like Ruth, Rahab. But in the new, it's open to us all. We all can know him now. This is why John says, now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, you might say, then is a liar and the truth is not in him. There's an if-then right now. Saying that you don't want the law is like saying you don't want to know God. But that's not how the church sees it today. Because... It, it, what we've been brought up in. By the law, we see what God loves. We see what God hates. We see, you know, what pleases Him. Okay, in a marriage without communication, it's going to end up in a divorce more than likely. Well, knowing the law is communicating with God. Again, Jeremiah said under the new covenant that was coming, everybody could know Him. Because the Spirit, as I said, lives in both Jews and Gentiles. You ask a Christian, how do you know you know God? Do you think that this is their answer? Yeah. I go to church. I pray at night. I do this. I do that. It's not how you know God. You know Him by His commandments. Pretty simple. No wonder the devil wants to take away the law from the church. He doesn't want you to know God. He doesn't want you to experience the blessings and obedience. We're not talking about salvation. I'm talking about blessings of obedience. Knowing God. Moses says the same thing in Exodus 33. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I might find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Show me your way that I may know you and find grace. So even in the old, there's hints of how to know God and find his grace. Um, so how does God show us his ways? His law, his word. Very simple. Keep going around and around on that. And then we find grace, not salvation, you're going to find grace in, in knowing God. Just like what we saw earlier in the New Testament, these people who do all this list of bad things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not find grace. So I'm not saying that you have to keep the commandments to be saved. What I'm saying is if you are saved, you are going to keep the Ten Commandments. or The law. You'll break them from time to time, but thanks be to God, I'm a saint in Christ Jesus and there's no condemnation for me anymore because he's made me holy. I can't earn my salvation. 
Matthew shows us how to know what is in our hearts as well. He says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Follow this logical conclusion. If the Torah is in your heart, what's supposed to come out of your mouth? Torah, the law. If God has placed his law in our hearts, it should be coming out of our mouths in the new covenant. A difference here, the new covenant, is the mediator. Hebrews 12, we talked about this when we did the study on Hebrews, so I'm going to go through this quick, but he says, You have not come down to the mountain that you may be touched, that burned with fire, to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Under the old covenant, they begged Moses to speak. Under the new covenant, we kind of touched on it, it's now Jesus. You see, they didn't want to hear God's word because it condemned them. Now, with Jesus, our mediator, as we do in communion all the time, when we take the body, it says the body of Christ was broken for you because it rid the condemnation, allowing you access into the most holy place. It says in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 20 of Hebrews, for they could not endure what was commanded. It condemned them. What I want you to see is that Hebrews here is saying exactly what Galatians is. Lest you think, you know, Galatians, Hebrews, Acts, Colossians, that we have different messages, it is a consistent message everywhere we've been going. And I, hopefully you've been seeing this. But... They're saying it's in a different location. You don't go to Sinai. You go to the New Jerusalem. They could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That is exactly what we just read here in Galatians chapter 4. It's not a new message. It's the same thing he said in Hebrews. He's not saying get rid of the Ten Commandments. He's saying don't go there to what you, can, what you cannot endure. Come to me where I will remove the condemnation, where I will put that law from stone into the heart, where I'm going to leave your, my Holy Spirit to empower you to, to obey, and you're going to grow and get to know me like you never could in the Old Testament. Verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and burned with fire. Again, basically the same thing that I just read here. Just pointing out that it was Moses... I hit the wrong button. That's where I'm going. That's why I was a little confused there. I went backwards rather than forwards. Verse 23. To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. Not Moses, Jesus. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So not only do we go to Zion, the heavenly one, not the earthly one, spiritual, not physical. Now, the mediator is Jesus, not Moses. And this is why Jesus can say, no one comes to the Father but by me. 
He is the mediator. You couldn't go to God except through Moses under the old. Now you can't get there unless you go through Jesus. Our mediator has now unlimited power, unlimited wisdom, unlimited, uncomparable love. He's eternal. He's omniscient. He's better than Moses. I mean, Moses was an awesome guy, but nothing compared to Yeshua. See, this is why I'm saying this is not renewed. This is brand new. Under this mediator, there can be no condemnation. There could be under Moses. There's, under this new covenant, there's no wondering whether you're, you're accepted or not. You're accepted by faith. No having to go to the temple. Don't have to go there you know, twice a day, three times a day at all because we are the temple. That's kind of nice. You don't have to have these repetitive sacrifices every day and year after year because Jesus was the sacrifice once and for all. These are some nice differences between the Old and the New Covenant, isn't it? But today we've grown up thinking the difference between the Old and the New is this. The Old is the Ten Commandments and the New is getting rid of the Ten Commandments. Does that sound like what this is saying? No, but that's what most of Christianity would teach today. It's important to understand what these covenants are. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, summing up, the law has a new address, our hearts. Okay, the dwelling of God is moved to a new place, us. The mediator is new, Jesus. The condemnation has been taken away. It's been done once for all, not yearly. And we have a new motivation. I'm not doing it because I have to or else I'm going to die. I do it because I want to. And the Holy Spirit lives in me. All authority is given to Jesus. This is a superior covenant and a superior mediator. Hebrews 7.1 For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. The priests were the ones that declared whether you were to be clean or unclean, right? Whether they could be in the camp or had to stay outside of the camp. Here in Hebrews, we see Melchizedek, a man of mystery for many, but I believe is Jesus Christ. His name is King of Peace and Righteousness. He's king, notice that. But notice he's also a priest. That's not right. Kings and priests were separate offices. You can't have a king and a priest together. They, they, they just don't come together. It's unusual. But that's the characteristic that we see of Melchizedek. And it says with, he had without father, without mother, without genealogy, that sounds eternal, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. That's Yeshua. He continually remains a priest for us. And that made like, some people say that that means he wasn't Jesus. I believe this is saying that the, you know, the Son of God is like means when he came like Melchizedek in a sense. Okay, uh, When he came as Melchizedek, he didn't come as the, the sacrificial Passover lamb. 
like he did in the New Testament. He had a different role there. Psalm 110 talks about Melchizedek. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord is sworn and he will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. How long? Forever. This priest, you don't have to wonder if tomorrow you wake up, maybe you're not going to be forgiven anymore. Or maybe tomorrow there's something that you're going to have to do to remain in the covenant. You don't. Um, what's interesting is here we see a priest that's sitting on a throne making peace between the two offices of priest and king and that's what was prophesied and that's exactly what Yeshua comes and he is not only our priest but he is a king and he is a prophet as well this would make anybody in the first century marvel that a king could hold a priestly office let alone a prophet as well but Micah showed us in closing here that this was supposed to happen. Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, where Yeshua is born, though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. In this prophecy of the Messiah, we see that Jesus eternally pre-existed now remember don't forget that the role of a priest was to mediate we no longer have to go daily to receive forgiveness and salvation by rules we live in a state of that forgiveness a state of salvation under the new covenant praise be to God that's what I want so I'm not saying by the way once saved always saved okay it it's still a covenant. If then. Okay, as long as we are under Jesus, we live in a state of sainthood. But if you step outside of King, Priest, Jesus, then you're leaving your priesthood. You're leaving that. So I still believe there's an if then in the sense of you start living in disobedience and you're not following Jesus, then he can't be in the unholy temple anymore. The Holy Spirit will have to depart. So just kind of make a little clarification there in case you, your mind goes there. But anyway, this is what Paul is doing in comparing Hagar and Sarah. He's not saying law or no law. He's saying you can't be saved by all of these works and these regulations, salvation is not of works. Salvation is of grace. That's what the new covenant is about. You see, it's now you are the temple. The law is in you, and this is a good thing. And that's why Paul, in the very next chapter, of, in chapter 5, goes into upholding the law. Just like Paul says in Romans, do we then nullify the law? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. But you have to understand what is the new and what is the old to understand what Galatians 4 is talking about. And I think that in our society, that's been misinterpreted greatly. So, any thoughts or questions? Why is it, do you think, that the modern Christian church 
is so willing to cling to the Ten Commandments and nothing else beyond that. You mean the Nine Commandments? The yeah, nine the Nine Commandments, yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's a few reasons. Bad theology being one. Those, the, the ten seem to be easy and not so Jewish, too. So I'm going to, I think part of the reason is the anti-Semitic attitude because the others include festivals and things like that. And so the anti-Semitic attitude that came about started getting rid of anything that had any Jewish appearance. And those then they could kind of keep without having that Jewish connection. I think that's probably where it started, more than likely. Which is kind of a fallacy, because they're pretty stinking Jewish. All of them are. Yeah, they're all the same. It's the Word of God. And I think the other thing is, is it's just like most people in the church today will say there's three wise men for the nativity scene. Right? Bible doesn't say that anywhere. But we would swear it does. Because you heard it so many times, it becomes truth. And once it becomes truth, it's hard to get people to look outside of those blinders. And honestly, I think very few people have ever heard what the new covenant truly is. Or what the old covenant was. Or what, these, what the law means. All they know is what they've been taught and there are no teachers out there teaching the truth. And then Satan knows that as well. So what Satan loves to do is he loves to contaminate the truth. Then, So he gets some of these people out there who will teach the truth, but they teach it legalistically like you have to do these things. And then the church sees that and they go, I am not running there. I don't blame them. I don't want to go there either. When we have messianic organizations that think that becoming Jewish in culture is making them more holy and more godly and, and whatever else the case might be and, and really living out a legalistic old covenant style of Christianity, I applaud the church for going against that. But Satan does that to keep them from being able to see it done in its proper way I think so I that would be my my guess for answers so anything else all right well hopefully that made sense um, I kind of combined some things to, to try to make it make sense but we'll close in prayer Lord Jesus we just give you glory for the new Jerusalem and we look forward to that day that it will come out of heaven and we will understand it perfectly. We give you glory for your spirit living in us. We give you thanks for that and that you have once for all time by the sacrifice and shedding of your blood freed us so that we now truly have liberty that there is no condemnation, that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation because it has been done. Lord, if we ever start believing that 
there's something we can do, Lord. Put a stop to it immediately and let us not go there. Let not Satan deceive us by those lies. Let our flesh not deceive us. But let us live in the Spirit. Let us uphold the Word of God, the law of God, and may, as you said, what is in our heart proceed out of our mouth. Give us wisdom and opportunity to share it with others. In the name of Yeshua, we pray and give glory and thanks. Amen.